Welcome to 66 Lessons for Life, the weekly radio program recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. Taught by our teacher, John Garepa, an attorney who guides us in the way of wisdom with a biblical worldview. You're invited to join us for the study. We are going to start a new subject today, and that is the subject of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a uh, terrific biblical example of how God has designed a man to serve him. What does God look for in the heart of man? And how should we, as men of God, look to serve God? What does it all mean? How does he want us to serve? What kind of burdens does he want us to have for a lost world? And you see all this um, in, in the story of Nehemiah the cupbearer. And so let's read with me as I read in chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read the uh, entire chapter. It's only 11 verses. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanai, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who have survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. What a prayer. What a man. What a guy. What a heart for the Lord. And so let's understand what's going on here. God had promised Israel that if they obeyed him, and we've gone through this, if they obeyed him, he would bless them as a nation. If they did not, then he would judge them and cause them to be taken into captivity. Uh, and we have gone through the blessings of the Lord in Deuteronomy 28. I want you to see that section of Deuteronomy 28 that speaks specifically to what happens if they disobey God. Turn to Deuteronomy 28. 
Because God is sovereign, God is just, God is holy. He will bless us when we live up to what he wants us to do. Uh, and when we, we disobey him, when we are supposed to be his people, then uh, he will punish us. And you see this here. Uh, look at verse 47. This is Deuteronomy 28. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, no new wine or oil, nor any calves of your herds or lambs of your flocks until you are ruined. God does not fool around. Okay? So you are my people. You are the priests that I have designated to give my word to a whole world. And I will bless you in so many ways. But if you do not live up to what I expect you to do, then all those things that I was going to pour into your lives, I will do exactly the opposite. You will be punished. And so you see this, that God has indicated to them. And you have to recognize, now Deuteronomy uh, is written somewhere about the year 1200 or so, B.C., and so we're going to see that the uh, Babylonian captivity takes place about 500 years later. So this prophecy is written 500 years before it will take place. But it's very, it's very clear. And God repeated this prophecy to Solomon. Now here it is, Solomon, who will have one of the greatest kingdoms in the history of the world. Who Solomon, who said, God said, I'll give you anything that you ask for. And he asked for wisdom, and he became, becomes effectively the wisest man in the world. And unbelievable prosperity and affluence are poured into his life uh, as he serves God and in, in creating this kingdom. But Solomon made it very clear, God made it very clear to Solomon what his expectations were for him. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 9. And this is all important because it's a prelude to the study of Nehemiah. 1 Kings chapter 9 verse 1 when Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and you realize that David was not allowed to build the temple David gathered all the materials to build the temple but God said there has been too much violence and bloodshed in your life you cannot build the temple your son Solomon will be allowed to build the temple and so when Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and achieved all he had a desire to do the Lord had appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, underline that, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, when I said you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons turn away from me 
and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all people. And though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. Am I getting through to you? Do you see the pattern? I will bless you. I will protect you. I will lift you up. I will give you everything you want, provided you serve me, worship me, live according to the commands that I've given you. Don't worship other gods. And I know some of you are thinking, well, you know, it's okay for back then. You know, they had these other little gods that they would go and worship, these figurines. Oh, folks, the gods Jesus is, God is talking about here are gods of affluence, gods of prosperity, gods of entertainment, gods of materialism. That's your other gods today. You're not sitting around getting a little Buddha uh, figurine and bowing to it. That's not what God is worried about. He's worried about your heart. Where's your heart? And, and, and you understand here. So put yourself in the shoes of Solomon and having God say to you, don't, don't worship any, any false gods. Well, guess what? Guess what? He didn't listen. He didn't listen. And now look. Look at chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter 11. And here's the thing. Here is the thing. Even when God makes it blatantly clear, man still doesn't get it through his thick skull. Because we always say, well, come on. God knows I have my weaknesses. I have my peccadilloes. After all, he created me. He's not going to. He can understand this little wayward view once in a while. This little trip over here to Egypt, Egypt, metaphorically, you understand I speak metaphorically. Uh, and I'm sure this is what went through Solomon's mind. After all, look, David was my father. Look at what David did. God, come on. I never killed anybody. And you and you love David. Look at what you said, all those promises. So come on. There's got to be some leeway there. You know, that's how men think. That's how people think, looking for the wiggle room. Well, here's the wiggle room. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. This is all a prelude to the study of Nehemiah. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. You couldn't come up with a better list of the enemies of Israel. You couldn't come up with. If I asked you, give me the, the five biggest enemies of Israel. There they are. And this guy falls in love, or maybe I should say falls in lust. How's that? Falls in love with lust with these women from these antagonistic cultures to the kingdom of God. Uh, and I, and I want to drill this home to you not because I think that this is something that you guys uh, would be susceptible to, because most of you have passed that age, hopefully. 
but to your children and your grandchildren. You understand? Your children and your grandchildren. And so here you see, there's, this is what his problem was. He had a problem of lust. Lust. Lust of the flesh. Verse 2. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. What does that mean? It means that God knew that when you are unequally yoked, that the people that you are unequally yoked with will not bring you closer to the cross of Jesus Christ. Even if they're not bad people, they will not bring you closer to the cross of Christ. They will bring you away from the cross of Christ and from God. And this is why God spoke like this. And, and this is why he said that. And so nevertheless, you know, that comes up in the Bible, that word. That's not a good word. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. I laugh about that word. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. That's some sentence, isn't it? I, I could speak for hours on that subject. And I laugh because it says his wives led him astray. Obviously, the concubines were not involved in leading him astray. Obviously, this guy had a full-time job. And it wasn't leading the kingdom. All right? He wasn't leading the kingdom. And so you see what's going on here. How could the house of God have descended like this? How could the house of God... This is a theocracy. How could God's people have their leader descend like this? And this was a guy who had prayed for wisdom, and God had given him wisdom, but obviously that had eroded. Verse 4, Solomon grew old. His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. You see the difference David, while he would fall and sin, yet he would come back because he had a deep heart for God, a love of God. Now what happened here with, with uh, Solomon is as a result of all these distractions as he got older, his heart was not with God. It had been hardened. Uh, and now he's trying to satiate all these women that are in his lives. And so in verse 5, he goes, we continue, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. I love that. The detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not follow the Lord completely uh, as David his father had done. And so you see this, and you understand what's saying. And so God tells Solomon, well, I'm not going to read it now. God tells Solomon, I am going to split the kingdom. I am going to divide the kingdom. I'm going to take it away from you because you defied me. You didn't obey me. You didn't listen to what I said. But because of your father, I will not do it until you die. But your children will get it. I'm going to divide the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom. And so that's exactly what happens. That is exactly what happens. And so after Solomon dies and his sons take over after him, God divides the kingdom. His hand of judgment falls. And, and both kingdoms continue to be characterized by idolatry 
and immorality. You can't imagine uh, what had happened to Israel as it divides up. And as God had forewarned, his hand of judgment fell. Well, the northern kingdom fell first, uh, and the northern kingdoms you know best because that's where the Samaritans were from. The northern kingdom fell first, and the people were taken into the captivity by the Assyrians. Uh, and that was in 722 B.C. Uh, then the southern kingdom was taken into captivity uh, about 150 years later by the Babylonians. And so what's happening? Let's understand what's happening historically. The northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel is now absorbed culturally into the Assyrian culture. And so what happens? As it's absorbed into the Assyrian culture, those people lost much of their identity with, with uh, Judaism. And that is why, later on, when you see the Pharisees come about who want to elevate the law, they had a particular disdain of the Samaritans because the Samaritans had effectively eroded the religion. Uh, and all they believed in were the first five books of, of Scripture. They didn't believe in any of the prophetic books, and they didn't, be, and they didn't believe in a resurrection uh, and so, uh, obviously, they were looked with disdain by the Jewish hierarchy. Now, the people of the southern kingdom, who were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, and you know this from your reading of Daniel, about what that was about. You know who Daniel was and how Daniel, even though he was in, in captivity to the Babylonians, rose to be a prime minister. You know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three young uh, Jewish boys who were also taken into captivity, all taken into captivity into the Babylonian culture. And now they are in, effectively, captivity in Babylonia. And so Israel and Jerusalem go down the tubes. The temple is destroyed. All the, all the articles of the temple are taken and stolen away. The walls are ripped down. Uh, it, is, it has become a vast wasteland, a desolate place, and not a place fit for anybody to, to occupy. Um, and so what happens here? Uh, uh, what happens here is that as years go by, they begin to speak to the king. There was a prophecy in Jeremiah that after 70 years of being in captivity, that, uh, that the king would come back and allow some settlement to take place in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and we know that Cyrus, the king, came into power and when he came into power, he was shown the prophecy from Jeremiah, and he allowed some people to go back. And some people went back and tried, tried to rebuild uh, the temple, tried to rebuild the temple. And then some years later, Ezra will go back and try to rebuild the temple. But what happens is, as Ezra goes back with the group, and Ezra goes back about 13 years before Nehemiah makes this, this prayer, Ezra will go back and... He's there authorized to rebuild the temple. He's not authorized to rebuild the wall. Well, as you can guess, a nationalistic spirit starts, and some of the Jews that were there with Ezra decide, let's rebuild the wall. And what happens? The northern kingdoms see what's going on and, and, and basically go back and tell the powers that be, you cannot allow them to rebuild the wall because if you do this, they're going to become a nationalistic problem. And so the emperor stops it. Artaxerxes stops it. Enters a decree. Enters a decree that the walls cannot be rebuilt. 
And so now utter desolation takes place. Now the stage is set for Nehemiah. Nehemiah, who is a Jewish man in captivity in Babylonia. Uh, and now Babylonia has been taken over by the Persians and the Medes. That's one of the things that you see here in these countries. There is a changing of, of the power base. Even though the Babylonians have come in, the Persians and Medes have taken over Babylon. Uh, and now in, the, in this position, Artaxerxes is now the emperor uh, of, this, of this kingdom. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Now let me explain to you what that means. The cupbearer is a key guy. He tests, first of all, he tests the, the drink, the wine that the king is going to uh, drink to make sure it's safe. But the cupbearer also typically was an extraordinarily handsome man, articulate, uh, well-spoken, wise. The king wanted somebody with him that would make him feel good. He didn't want to look at some troll. He wanted to have some guy there who's well-spoken, articulate, wise, who would engage him. This was a prime job. You didn't give up this job. You got this job, you would hopefully have it for life. And I want you to think about the fact that this Jewish man now is put into this position by God, put there so that he can speak to the king about the issues that are troubling the people of God. But he has, the, has to have the courage, he has to have the courage to step up. It's like, it's like the story of Esther. Had to have the courage to speak up because most likely it would be easier to keep your mouth shut. And one of the lessons of Nehemiah that we're going to study is that God expects us to have a heart for those in need. God expects us when we see something of, that requires to be done, that there's some issue that requires to be addressed, that there's some need in the kingdom of God. We're not one of those people that goes like this. Boy, that's too bad. That's just, that's a shame. So uh, what time are we going to play golf today? Where are we going for dinner? What's on tap? Instead, God expects the people of God to say this. My heart is troubled. My heart is burdened. I can't sleep. I can't sleep while I know that this is going on. God is compelling me to address this issue in the kingdom. That's the first lesson that this drills home to me. That's what God expects us to do with our lives. When he sees, when he puts these issues in front of us, he expects us to have a heart. And so in 444 BC, this is now about 15 years or so later than Ezra has now been shut down uh, from his work in rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah has a life-changing conversation with his brother and some other men who returned from Jerusalem. And you see that in this reading. Uh, and he inquired about what's the condition of the city. Now remember, these are Jews that haven't been back in a couple hundred years. A couple hundred years have gone by. Well, what's happening to my homeland? How are the people that are there? What's going on? Uh, and they responded, after they had come back from a trip, they responded that the remnant that who had survived, those Jews that were there, were in great distress, and that the walls were broken down as well as the gates. Now, there is an important spiritual lesson here that you need to be cognizant of relative to what the walls represent. 
When we speak about the walls here, the walls are not just the physical walls surrounding Jerusalem and protecting areas of Israel. This story uh, is in scripture because the walls represent the separation between God's people and paganism, between what God believes is worshiping him and those people who are worshiping foreign cultures. God expects the walls in our heart to be strong and mighty, not allowing us to be corrupted, not allowing us to be corrupted by false worship, by worshiping things of this world, by immorality. And that's what this wall represents. It represented the fact that the Jewish people, God's called people, uh, were now effectively so intermingled with the world that there was no distance between them and the world and, and the, the call of God on their lives. That's what the wall represents. And that's why Nehemiah having this burden to go back and build the wall is a critical study for us. Because what it represents is God's call on us to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the, the service towards God, to rebuild our commitment towards God, to elevate the people of God, to protect the people of God, to protect God's word, to teach God's word, to do all the thing that, things that God has called you for, to elevate his word. And so you see this here. And so when Nehemiah heard this story, heard that, that, that there was a terrible distress in Jerusalem, uh, as I indicate in my notes to you, he mourned, fasted, and prayed for days, asking God to do something about this deplorable condition. For days, in fact, as you read chapter 1 and read chapter 2, uh, theologians tell us that four months transpires from the time that he had heard this to the time in which ultimately he will approach the king. Four months, four months of praying, four months of fasting, Four months of mourning. And so the first thing here is that God drills into us that when there is a call on our lives, that God expects us to pray. That when we see these detestable conditions, God expects us to mourn in our spirit. Uh, and, and in this condition here, he fasted, indicating the severity of the prayer, how significant his heart was broken. And so God took four months so that ultimately the call and anointing would come on Nehemiah. That's what the four months is for. The four months of praying is not to shake the gates of heaven. It's not to shake the gates of heaven. Oh God! No, the four months of prayer and fasting is to shake the gates of Nehemiah. And, and to make Nehemiah ready to understand God's will. That's what prayer is about. We've gone through this. As you pray, as you pray and you ask God for intervention, God is preparing you to receive the answer, preparing the vessel through the Holy Spirit so that you know what he wants you to do. And that's what goes on. And so God, the person that God ultimately chooses, has a burden for his people. Now, this goes, and the application for us today is God has put burdens on you for so many different things to advance the kingdom of God. Every day, God puts burdens on you. 
You need to pray about it. You can't do everything. And by the way, God understands that. Not every single need is the need that God has put in your heart for you to do. Not everything. Because if it was everything, you'd do nothing. All you would do would have your radar screen of your life involved with thousands upon thousands of needs. God doesn't expect that. But God has certain things in line for you, certain needs that you are called to do, certain things that he expects you to be the leader, and you need to be on your knees uh, and praying about that and asking God to reveal that to him. And so the first lesson here is that God places the burden on our heart uh, for his work. When he does that, that's when God can use us. And when God wants to use you in some capacity, the first thing he does is to burden your heart. And I'm sure, knowing you, that most of you, if not all of you, have had at some time burdens placed on your heart for the kingdom of God. I know that. And so I want you to know something. That doesn't happen just because you have a soft heart. It's because God communicates with you through the Holy Spirit. He communicates with you through the Holy Spirit. Uh, and when he does that, you need to respond. I told you the story that, that when, I, when I was in church and I saw that grandmother presenting her four grandchildren that she had adopted. I saw that, that story. And immediately, immediately, I felt the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart. I didn't even understand it. I didn't know what it was about. But I felt like God was saying, pay attention, John. Pay attention here. And, and then when the pastor said, I want your family, and I know you've just adopted these grandchildren as your own children, I want all your friends who are here with you and your family to stand up that have come here today. And not one person stood up. 2,000 people. Not one stood up. And God literally said to me, I felt this in my heart, you, John, you are her family. You see how God does it? You are your family. Now, look, normally I might say, look, I can't, I can't help everybody. I can't do everything. There's a lot of sad stories in the world. There's a lot of sad stories in the world. And then I went home and I prayed about it. And I'm in bed. I can't sleep that night. I literally can't sleep that night. I toss and turn all night long because I'm thinking about this situation. I'm, I'm convinced that this is exactly what happened in Nehemiah. And it's when God does that to you, that it's God shaking you and saying, wake up, wake up. This is for you. You need to step up. You need to be the spokesman. You need to be the leader. I'm using this as just a small example to you of how God expects us to lead the, a life of, of, of godliness. This is what God has called you to do. So whether it's doing what I just did there, or going into the prisons to doing it, or going into St. Matthew's house, or finding people who are just shoved aside in life, God has called you to elevate people in the kingdom of God. And you need to be responsible. You need to be responsible. Look, don't tell me, well, I'm saved, I know I'm saved, and that's good enough. Look, I hear this all the time. Don't you get it? God expects much more than saying, oh, I'm saved. Yeah, I'm, you're saved? Prove it. I want to see the fruit of your spirit. I want to see your walk. What are you doing to submit your life to me? I need you to be my hands and feet. 
And so you see, God spoke to Nehemiah. That's why this story really resonates with me. It really resonates with me. I see a guy, a simple guy, who didn't have to go back to Jerusalem. He was okay. He was taken care of. He's the cupbearer to the king. Why does he need to get involved with a bunch of Jews 200 years separated from him? He could have lived his life out in peace and harmony, in affluence, living in the palace. But you see how God is? He seizes him. He takes him. He's convicting him. He can't have peace. He can't stand there. He has to work and move for the kingdom. And so you see this. And what you see here is Nehemiah didn't immediately rush to the king. It took four months praying about it, fasting, mourning, four months as he does this. And now Nehemiah recognized, because he had still been a religious man, he, he still was a, a devout Jew, he understood that God had the power to fix this. He didn't say, oh, it's lost. It's lost. It's too late. You know how many of us make those prayers. I've made many of those prayers myself when we say, oh, Lord, I need you to enter this situation. It's so, but I know it's hopeless. I, I, I pronounce the judgment even in the prayer. Yes, you, you won't do it. I know you could, but you probably won't. How many prayers have you made like that? Those are the prayers. Never mind getting to heaven. They don't hit the ceiling. You know what I mean? Those kind of prayers. And you wonder why. You wonder why. Instead, Nehemiah understood, understood that God had the power and the authority to change it, which is what I believe God has. There are no hopeless prayers within the will of God. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is impossible. Nehemiah knew that prayer. Nehemiah knew that. He was aware of Jeremiah. He understood that Jeremiah had even prophesied that they would be in captivity 70 years before they would be sent back to rebuild the temple. And so you look at this prayer that he makes, this incredible prayer that Nehemiah makes, beseeching God and asking God to intervene. Uh, and he, he begins his prayer by acknowledging that fact. O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. That's the beginning of the prayer. O oh Lord God of heaven, God of the universe, the great and awesome God. That's the first thing we need to do when we pray. Acknowledge the awesome sovereignty and holiness of God. Not you are my concierge. Not you are my pal. Not I need this really big. The first part is, Lord God, you are holy. You are the creator of the universe. You are the sovereign God of everything. That's exactly what God wants to hear. The acknowledgement by his creation of who he is, what he represents. Uh, and, and how often do we fail to do this? Um, and, and the acknowledgement meaning that, God, I know you can do this. 
I know you are holy and you are sovereign. I understand we are where we are because we deserve it. We earned our way here. We earned our way here. This just didn't happen by accident. We earned it. And so what you see here is Nehemiah acknowledging that this is a God that can answer that prayer. Uh, And then in the prayer of confession of the sins of the people of Israel, Nehemiah includes himself. Oh, what a fantastic prayer. He's speaking prayerfully, confessing to God, Lord, we have sinned. I have sinned. We have failed. I have failed. We have not listened to you. We have not followed your commands. We have not followed your ordinances. We have failed in so many ways. We are where we are because you promised us that if we live like this, this is where we would be. God, forgive us. Is that a prayer that you can make? Lord, forgive me. As I speak to you now, Lord, and I need your intervention, forgive me and forgive the people around me. Forgive God's people in every way. Uh, and, And what's amazing is as you see the prayers of God for people that are in captivity that are being answered, you see that this is a common thread. This common thread of what I will call community confession. I'm confessing not merely for myself, Lord, but I'm confessing also for the sins of the people. And you don't see it, by the way, you don't see this as an excuse prayer. You know, Lord, I'm a weak man. Lord, I have issues in my life. Lord, you know I come from a dysfunctional family. Lord, I didn't have a good mother or father. I had bad role models in my life. The litany goes on and on and on. Instead, this was an acknowledgement that I am in captivity for hundreds of years because I failed to abide by the laws of God. That's why we're here. That's why we're in captivity. It's our sin. And that is the central issue in the world today. Sin. You want the central issue for the world across every possible line? It is sin. From the issue of government, to the issue of people, to the issue of poverty, to the issue of warfare among nations, to the issue of religious warfare, the issue is sin. It is sin. And when man sins, this is what happens. They fall far from the grace of God, far outside the will of God, and we wind up being in captivity. And let me say this to you. The captivity here was physical. The captivity today is not just physical, it's spiritual. Many of us can be in America, we can live in a land of prosperity, and the question I ask you, is this country prospering spiritually? You see this country advancing spiritually? You see this country getting closer to God, or do you see a people in bondage? Do you see a people outside the will of God? And what you do is you see it. You see the analogy in this story here. And so it makes sense. And so Nehemiah understood, Nehemiah understood that prayers that would reach the throne of God had to be prayers of confession that recognized this. Uh, and, and it's so, so important as you see this. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. And this was a prayer that would have been made about 100 years before Nehemiah 
is alive before Nehemiah will go in and speak to the king. Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel is one of the Jewish men who was taken in captivity as a young boy, brought to Babylon, uh, and because of the grace of God, you know the story, he will wind up being prime minister, but it's sometimes because of the enemies, his enemies, at one point he was thrown into a lion's den to be killed, and God pr protected him. And look at the prayer that Daniel makes. And this is the prayer that Daniel makes right about as, as Cyrus, or as he's called here, Darius, will come in, uh, taking over the kingdom of Babylon as Babylon is overthrown, and the Persians and Medes come in, and, and Daniel now will, will seek to have the king's heart changed to allow them to begin to go back to Jerusalem. And look at the prayer, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God. Stop. Does that sound pretty similar to the prayer that Nehemiah made? Exactly. You see it? He was aware of it. The acknowledgement, God, you are the sovereign God of the universe. I acknowledge who you are. What a lesson this is to you in your prayer life. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. I like that because here I am in captivity. I've been in captivity now at the time that he makes this prayer, about 70 years. And what does he say? Oh, God, why did you do this to us? Oh, what has availed us? Oh, God, we are miserable. Now, he doesn't say any of that. You are awesome. You are valid. You are appropriate. You love us. You expect us to keep your law. Who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. That's how you get God's attention. Lord, my heart is broken. Lord, I have sinned. I have fallen. That's why David was beloved by God. Because he could make that confession. Because his heart was broken. He didn't make excuses. He didn't go around saying, I'm weak. I come from dysfunctional parents. I have proclivities. You know how I am. He didn't say any of that. What did he say? We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your names to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. There it is. There it is. Word after word, verse after verse. Lord, we're wrong. It's us. We violated your law. We violated your will. We have been evil. We deserve where we are. We are exactly where we have earned, where we have earned to be. And you see this. You understand that this is the kind of prayer that God expects us to make uh, when God wants us uh, to acknowledge him. There was a similar prayer uh, some years after that. This is just before Nehemiah will, will speak in Ezra chapter 9. Turn to Ezra chapter 9. And Ezra will, will precede Nehemiah by a few years. Ezra chapter 9, verse 6. Actually, verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement. 
with my tunic and cloak torn, and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. How's that for opening prayer? How's that? I'm too ashamed to lift up my head. I know what we've done. I know what I've done. I can't even look at you. Verse 7. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today. Wow, what a prayer that is. The acknowledgement, the acknowledgement. We are where we are because we deserve it. We earned it. That's the prayer that we make to God when we ask God to intervene. You are holy. You are God. You are sovereign. You are the creator. And we are sinners. We are lost. We are debased. And so you see how God acknowledges these kind of prayers. Daniel was uplifted. When God heard that prayer, ultimately uh, Cyrus would begin to allow the migration back to Jerusalem. He would allow it when he saw uh, that, that Jeremiah had prophesied it 70 years earlier, even though he was a pagan. Even though he was a pagan, when he saw it in the scripture, his heart was touched because God touched his heart because of that prayer of Daniel. And so he allowed the migration to begin. And then Ezra, some years after that, again, asking the king, Artaxerxes, asking the king, allow us to go back and build the temple, rebuild the temple. And Artaxerxes allows it because of that. And now you see it in Nehemiah, repeating it, knowing that the condition is, is bad, that, that the rebuilding has stopped, that the, that the king has stopped. And you see it. You see it all taking place. And what happens? The king, Artaxerxes, will allow it to go forward, will allow it to go move forward because Nehemiah has confessed his sins to God, has placed himself before the throne of God, has acknowledged that we are where we are because we deserve it. And you are holy and you are just, but you are merciful and you love us and will help us. And we'll continue that next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the lesson that you've given us. This extraordinary example of Nehemiah. Lord, help us to get a greater vision of who he is and how he lived his life and how you blessed him, and how he prayed. Help us to incorporate that into everything that we do, Lord. Bless our people, protect them this week, and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to 66 Lessons for Life, the men's Bible study taught by John Garippa and recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding so that you, the man of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For more information about the program or attending the Naples Men's Bible Study at the Naples Conference Center, go to our website at 66lessonsforlife.com.